We're going to be in Revelation 3. We're looking at Philadelphia's faithfulness. Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come down, come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one takes your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God in my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word, and may he write it on our hearts. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we uh, get into your word tonight and we study the sixth of seven churches in these letters to the churches in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, there's going to be a lot of application for us tonight. And we're going to talk about what faithfulness is about. We're going to talk about this church at Philadelphia and we're going to talk about us and how we can be found faithful, Lord. And the, you know, as I've surveyed life uh, as you've given me this perspective as a non-Christian before and a Christian now and a pastor, it seems like the faithful are the few. And Lord, we want to be found among the faithful, so help us to remain faithful. Strengthen us because faithfulness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And give us what we need, Lord, to have that courage and that strength to persevere. Bless our time tonight. Open our ears to what the Spirit would say to your church bought with your blood I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Philadelphia's faithfulness. Someone asked James J. Corbett, at that time the heavyweight champion of the world, what was the most important thing a man must do to become a champion? He replied, fight one more round. The Duke of Wellington said, to the British, said that the British soldiers at the Battle of Waterloo were not any braver than Napoleon's soldiers, but they were brave for five minutes longer. This is what the Christian success story is about. This is a lot of what life is about. Can you hang in there for one more day, for five more minutes? During an interview with Abraham Lincoln, long after he had been inaugurated president, a friend asked him if he loved Jesus. The president buried his face in his handkerchief, wept and sobbed. He then said amid his tears, when I left home to take the chair of the state, I was not then a Christian. When my son died, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and looked upon the graves of our dead who had fallen in the defense of their country, I then and there committed myself to Christ. I do love Jesus. The spectacle of that crucified one which is before my eyes is more than sublime. It is divine. A gentleman having an appointment to meet President Lincoln at 5 o'clock in the morning went a quarter of an hour before the time appointed 
While waiting for the appointed time, he heard in the next room a voice as if a grave conversation was going on. He asked the attendant, who's talking in the next room? Well, it is the president, sir, replied the attendant. Is anybody with him, the gentleman inquired. No, he is reading the Bible. Uh, is that his habit so early in the morning, the man asked. Yes, sir. He spends every morning from 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the morning reading the scriptures and praying. What makes a man faithful? What makes a woman faithful? What is the secret of faithfulness? Fighting one more round, staying true for one more day, just taking one day at a time. This is what faithfulness is all about. There's a string of uh, these kinds of things that I've come across, and I just want to read a few of them because I think it'll give you the flavor of what we're after. A shepherd once came to the city of Edinburgh from the country. He had his small, obedient dog with him. While there, the man died and was buried. That little dog lay on his master's grave, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, but for 12 years. Every day at 1 o'clock, a gun fired in the castle of Edinburgh. When the gun fired, the dog would run to a local baker who gave it food and water. Then back to the grave it would go. This continued till the dog died 12 years later. That is faithfulness. A man threw a goose. Let me go back up here for a second. <laughs> a man threw a, a goose, which had been run over and crushed by a car, into an oil drum. For seven years, the gander, that, that's the goose's mate, never went more than 10 feet away from the oil drum. That is faithfulness. George Mueller prayed for 52 years for a certain man to come to Jesus Christ. A pastor visited an elderly man 29, 21 times before being let in to see him. But then he befriended the man, led him to Christ. That is faithfulness. Now we could go on and on and on. I don't know what it takes for you to give up. I don't know what it takes for you to lose patience. But there are many, many stories of incredible faithfulness. A Welsh postman had the British Empire Medal conferred upon him by Queen Elizabeth. He had not missed a day's service in 43 years. Uh, Thomas Edison made 18,000 experiments before he perfected the arc light. After experiencing 50 failures on another project, he said, I found 50 ways it cannot be done. That is faithfulness. What does it take for you and me to be found faithful? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. It is required of a steward that he be found faithful. But you know, faithfulness is not an easy thing, is it? In fact, I would say the thing that the devil pounds on Christians the most is something I've mentioned to you in the past, and that is to give up. Uh, Philadelphia was only one of two churches of the seven that doesn't get rebuked, doesn't get called upon to repent. Only two of the seven. Smyrna was the other church in Philadelphia. That's why the, the Philadelphian church is known as the faithful church. So we are at church six of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And before we look at lukewarm Laodicea, which we'll look at in two weeks from tonight, we're going to look at this church called Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the faithful church. And we've looked at churches that were called dead. We've looked at churches that, you know, Jesus said you have a good reputation, but you know what, I know what you're about. There's a lot of things that have come out in these assessments of the church. And so let's take a look at the angel 
uh, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, verse 7, chapter 3, write, He who is holy, remember Jesus is addressing every church through the pen of John, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. You could say it this way, thus says the Lord. Here's what he's going to say to the church at Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was called the gateway to the east, a city of commercial importance. Philadelphia was situated on the Cogamus River, a tributary of the Hermas, or modern Gadez, about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It was found by Attalus II Philadelphus. There's a little debate as to whether it was his brother or him that founded the city. I think most scholars would argue that it was Attalus II, known as Philadelphus, who reigned as king of Pergamum from 159 B.C. until 138 B.C., from whom the city derived its name. He named the city in honor of his brother. And Philadelphia, of course, means what? Brotherly love. We have our own city uh, of Philadelphia. And uh, let's look at a little uh, location and pictures. So you can see, uh, even though we have Thyatira circled, Philadelphia is actually down a little ways from there. All these cities are within about three, 30 to 40 miles of each other. This is, these are some ruins where there's a church just behind these ruins in the area of ancient Philadelphia. A little closer look. Um, what you'll see at most of these sites is some ruins that remain from maybe the time of Paul. Uh, sometimes things got built a little later. Sometimes they're a little earlier than uh, the time of Christ. Most of these places had some sort of ancient marketplace or agora that would uh, walk up to the ancient sites where there was worship going on. And many of these sites, as we've looked at these churches, had amphitheaters or stadiums. Philadelphia actually was known for the games. They had a lot of kind of Olympic-type games going on. There were a lot of performances that were done here. All of these cities had what was called an Acropolis, which was an elevated city where they would have major buildings. And then they would all have uh, typically multiple temples. I think this one is a temple to Hercules uh, that was erected somewhere around this time. So you'll, you'll find ruins like this in these locations. And uh, anyway, if you could take me back to the main slide from back there, Andy, that would be great. So this city prospered for two primary reasons. One was its strategic location. It was called the Gateway to the East. And the second was it was a, a very flourishing place for the grape-growing industry or the wine industry. So the ancient god that was worshipped in association with wine was the Greek god Dionysius. His Roman name was Bacchus. So people would go into this temple and they would get inebriated. They would drink alcohol to excess. Some stories say that they would gorge themselves on raw meat. And they, this would prepare them to commune with the god or the goddess or the gods. So in ancient times, sometimes you'll hear this today, people would say, you know, I need to kind of alter my state of consciousness to really get in touch with God. So they would overdrink or they would mess with pharmacia, ancient types of drugs, and they would say, that gets me in touch with God. Just like today, some of the moderns will say, you know, when I do this drug, then I'm a little bit more open to God, man. <laughs> now, I know there's a whole debate in our world about medical uses of things like that, and I'm not going to talk about that, but I am going to say this. We are to have one master. And if we're altering our state of consciousness just to alter our state of consciousness, here's what happens. 
it becomes a doorway for Satan. And I don't have to tell you tonight, but I will tell you anyway, because I hear these stories over and over again, and they're not just outside the church, they're inside the church, where people are dropping like flies to drugs. It is an absolute epidemic and travesty. If I had Pastor John come up here tonight and tell you the number of friends that he has lost to drug addiction, I think you would be appalled. There is so much that goes on in our world. You know, I had a friend years ago who called cocaine the devil's dandruff. And this is what people do. You know, they, they get caught up in stuff. Sometimes it seems like somewhat innocent fun. People call it recreational use. But in the end... There is a problem behind these things called drugs. People are abusing pills. People get, you know, I'm not saying that they're bad people, but people can get caught up in this really fast. Uh, in, in fact, some of you remember Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor started smoking crack cocaine. He was a well-known uh, comedian back in the day. And he said that he got to a, such a low point in smoking crack cocaine that he would lock himself behind a door where nobody could get to him. And he said his pipe, his cocaine pipe, began to talk to him. Some of you may remember that Richard Pryor, in a room, locked in a room, smoking crack cocaine, lit himself on fire and uh, was in deep trouble. Had to go off to the hospital and stuff like that. And his story is just one that's been repeated so many times. And back in the ancient world, it wasn't much different People were messing with drugs, but they were saying it was for religious purposes. They could, you know, commune with this, this god Bacchus or Dionysius. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think what was behind that was not the god of the Bible, of course. Jesus, notice in this verse, is claiming to be holy. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy and who is true. This is Habakkuk 3, verse 3. And I'll tell you this, that... Many times in the Old Testament, God will describe himself as holy. Listen to Habakkuk 3. And I'll tell you what, as you listen to this, turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 and listen to Habakkuk 3 as you turn over there. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him, before the Holy One, goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways, God's ways, are everlasting. In the book of Isaiah, as Isaiah breaks into a section, chapters 40 through 48, where he compares the incomparable God to the gods of the nations, God says this through the prophet. To whom, Isaiah 40, verse 25, then will you liken me? That I should be his equal, says the Holy One. You're going to see this over and over again, that the God of the Bible calls himself the Holy One. He is the Holy One. What does the word holy mean? The word holy means unique, separate, consecrated, pure, um, it, it is a term that is applied to us by extension because our, our, of our relationship with God. But God alone is holy. God, in, God says in Leviticus eleven forty four and 45, I am holy, so you be 
holy. Peter picks that up in 2 Peter chapter 1. I think it's verse 17. I am holy, so you be holy. The angels in the uh, earlier vision in Isaiah 6 never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Scholars say that God's holiness is His aboveness, His separateness, His purity, His power. It is by very nature uh, the fact that God is holy. He is holy within Himself. The demons would approach Jesus in the Gospels and they would say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, Mark 1.24. Peter responded, in John 6, 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'll give you some more, but I want you to turn to Philippians 2 for a second. God asked the question in Isaiah 40, verse 25, with whom will you compare me or who will be my equal? The answer is nobody, but look at Philippians 2. This is a little side note, but it's important for the purposes of establishing Christ's deity a lot of people say, well, what, what are the clear passages on Christ's deity? Take a look at Philippians 2. Look at verse 6. Who, Christ is the one being talked about, end of verse 5. Christ Jesus is the subject who, although he existed in the form of God, the morphe of God, did not regard, what's your Bible say? Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, Jesus, in his subjugation or his uh, voluntary... Uh, submission to the Father in the Incarnation took on humanity. He did not subtract deity. He added humanity. God cannot stop being God. So it was not the subtraction of deity when Jesus became a man. It was the addition of humanity. Always remember that. That's the mystery of the Incarnation. Jesus in Philippians 2.6 had equality with God, but he did not grasp onto it. He released it for a season as he came down to the earth and was made in the likeness of men. Everybody with me? You can't be called equal with God unless you're God. To whom will you liken me, says the Lord? Who will you call my equal? When Jesus opens in Revelation 3, just flip back to Revelation in verse 7, he says, I am the Holy One. I am the true one. He is the Holy One of God. Just flip ahead to Revelation 4 for a second. Revelation 4, look at verse 8. Revelation 4, 8 says these words. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Flip ahead to Revelation 6, look at verse 10. The martyrs crying out to God. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? What's your Bible say there? Holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? My point is this. This is a claim emphatically to Jesus being God. He is the Holy One and He is the true one. Holy and true. The combination of purity and otherness combined with the word true which in Greek is alathenas. We have a few people in our congregation that are named aletheia or alathea. That is the Greek word for truth. And so Jesus Christ is the true one. He is the, the idea, scholars that look at the language say, when you see true, it means genuine. He is genuine. He is real. He is authentic. 
when I became a Christian, that's one of the things that was driving me. I was looking for things that were true and real and authentic. Amen? You may be doing that tonight. Maybe you're wondering, is there anything in this world? You know, sometimes you run into people and you're like, man, that person's a phony. That person turned their back on me. That person did this. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is pure. He is genuine. He speaks the truth. Uh, the Old Testament sense, by the way, of being true also connects with the idea of being faithful, which uh, fits with this church. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true, John 3.33. Uh, he who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, says Jesus, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent me, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And then one more, i got to show you Revelation 19. We'll see this later, but Revelation 19, look at verse 11. I saw heaven opened, Revelation 19, 11, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, this is Jesus, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So Jesus Christ is the faithful and true one. Go back to Revelation 3, verse 7, as he addresses the church at Philadelphia. He says, I am faithful I am true, or I am holy, I am true. And he who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and he shuts, and no one opens, says this. Now, back in these uh, areas, when I was telling you that a lot of the ancient churches were dealing with synagogues in the area, and a lot of them were dealing with being excommunicated from the synagogue. In fact, some of the Jews were finding shelter underneath the roof of the synagogue from the imperial cult, the uh, emperor worship that was going on. And I've explained to you that if you could find some sort of shelter underneath the synagogue, you would not have to honor the emperor. But the Jewish leadership was basically trying to separate themselves from Christians. And they were saying, no, they're not even a sect of Judaism. We have nothing to do with them. So Christians were becoming exposed. And in essence, what the synagogue was doing was locking out the Christians. They were excommunicating Christians. And of course, a lot of Christians didn't care anyway because they didn't necessarily want to be part of the synagogue. But you guys might remember that in the ministry of Jesus Christ, there were a lot of occasions when uh, what was at stake was being kicked out of the synagogue. Remember the story of the blind man? His parents, John 9.22, are fearful it was fear of the Jews, lest they be kicked out of the synagogue. There were religious leaders later on in the Gospel of John who were not confessing Jesus publicly because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. When you were kicked out of the synagogue, by the way, your name could be erased from the rolls of the, the synagogue, but you could also lose your social standing and even your ability to work and in a lot of these cities, your ability to even be protected from Rome, there was a lot at stake. Can you imagine what was going on here in, in terms of the, the hatred that was coming at the Christians? You know, so much persecution in the early centuries of the church was coming from people who said they were religious. Saul of Tarsus, if you had coffee with Saul, was a religious man. But what did he do? He was persecuting the church. And I'll tell you what, you look at the history of the world and a lot of persecution that's happened uh, in the church or to the church has come from people who claim to be religious. And still today, not much has changed. If you want to write down those verses about being locked out of the 
synagogue, John 9.22, John 12.42, and John 16.2, where Jesus says the future is going to come when they will kick you out of the synagogue on account of my name. Being locked out of a place is a bummer. How many of you have ever been locked out of some place? Uh, if you locked your, boy, almost all of you. So uh, if you've locked your keys in the car, I know with, with a lot of the modern vehicles, it's almost impossible to do, but still we find a way. <laughs> so if you lock your keys in the car, it's a bummer because you have to confess it to somebody, right? Unless you call AAA, right? Then that guy, you're usually anonymous with that guy unless he knows you from somewhere, right? But if you've been locked out of your house, that's got to be one of the worst things. Have you ever done one of those things where, you know, getting everything together, maybe you're rushing off to work, and you close the door, and you go, oh, no. My wife told me to put that hide key but I didn't do it, and now I'm out, locked out of my own house. How many of you have been on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride where that dog's holding the keys, and those guys are in the prison? <laughs> trying to get the attention of that dog. Man, he's holding all the power. He who has the keys has the power. And what was basically happening was the Christians in Philadelphia were locked out. Nobody seemed to want them. They were outcast to Rome. They were kicked out or excommunicated from the synagogue. And they had to be asking, man, do we have any place? Are there any open doors to us? Is there anybody who cares about our plight, you know, you may feel that way tonight. I know sometimes it's hard when people become Christians in families where there's a bunch of atheists or there may be another religious foundation in that household and one becomes a Christian. You know, we listened to a testimony from Sahar on Sunday, right? I mean, again, you, you have someone who, it's not easy sledding to become a Christian in a lot of these contexts. And, you know, the Christians would often find themselves alone and locked out. But Jesus says, I'm the one, verse 7, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now, I think the immediate setting here uh, has to do with access to God. You know, you may have difficulty in terms of your life and circumstances that may happen as a result of being a Christian, but no one can ever, if you're a Christian, lock you out from access to God. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep, right? You enter in through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can lock you out of the presence of God. I don't care where you are. A prison cell. Uh, waiting at a door, whatever it is. Jesus is the reality. It's not about a building. It's not about a place. Christianity is about a person. Nothing will ever separate you from his love. Not angels, not principalities, not powers, not height, not depth, not any other created thing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? So there are people in our world today who don't they're not able to go to a church. Why? Because the church is underground. There are people who have to walk miles in some areas just to find a church that's actually meeting somewhere in their region. But nothing could ever separate you or lock you out from God's presence. Nothing. Now, scholars are quick to point out that, and you might want to write this down, that the key of David, Isaiah 22, write down verses uh, about 15 through 25, refers to Eliakim, the treasurer or steward to King Hezekiah. 
of whom almost identical words are used. He controlled entrance into Hezekiah's palace and presence because he was entrusted with the key of David. Eliakim had the key to all the treasures of the king. The background is the oracle against Shebna, uh, Hezekiah's, uh, uh, the previous guy who held the, the king, uh, the key. And he had to be removed and he was replaced by Eliakim. And Eliakim held the key to the access to the king and to the treasures. And that's the parallel from Isaiah 22 to Revelation 3. To have the key is to have access. The keys of the kingdom were given to the apostles, right? As they preached the gospel, they were given the keys. Peter went in the book of Acts and he opened the door to the Jews, Acts chapter 3. Then he opened the door to the Samaritans, Acts chapter 8. Then he opened the door to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. It's quite interesting to think about. Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses, Acts 1.8, and I will give, and I, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Acts 3, where Peter pre- preached, in Judea, Samaria, that's Acts 8, where they came after the preaching, I think it was Philip, and Acts 10, uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth as he goes into the Gentile household of Cornelius. Jesus says, I give you the keys. I'm going to heaven. You're going to stay on earth. And when you stay, you're going to preach the message and people are going to come to me. And in essence, they had the key of David, the key to the presence of God, to the way of God. And by the way, the church now carries the keys. In every generation, the church has been asked to, be, to protect the key and to pass it on to the succeeding generation. Those of you who are young tonight, at some point, we're going to get old and tired. We're pretty much there. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) Sort of. Anyway. And you're going to take the keys. And it will be called upon you to be found faithful. You hearing me, young people? I see you. It's going to be your turn to not water down this gospel. To preach it faithfully to preach it with love and faithfulness. I heard a story of a pastor, I think it was in the same pulpit for 50 years. Think of Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, you know, guys that we take for granted. They've been preaching, John MacArthur, they've been in the same pulpit for 50 years, some of them. It's amazing to me. But that's what it means to be found faithful, to fight one more round, to go one more inning, to keep swinging by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Jesus says in Revelation 1.17, he says, I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus has the keys. No one's going to lock you out. Someone can kick you out of a church, and hopefully if they ever kicked you out of a church, it would be for noble reasons, right? There were people getting kicked out of the synagogue. There were people, you know, all kinds of stuff was happening. But uh, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I'm the bright and morning star Revelation twenty two sixteen, So look at Revelation 3, 8. He says, I know your deeds. And I, he says, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. Now, an open door which no one can shut sounds like Jesus is the one that who's, has the open door. Paul sometimes used the idea of an open door in terms of an opportunity to preach. Now, think of this. He has the key. The key is primarily access to God, I think, in context, taking with Isaiah 22. But the idea of a key also connects to the gospel. This church 
situated geographically at the gateway to the east where Philadelphia was known to spread Hellenism to the ancient world. You say, what's Hellenism, Pastor Michael? Hellenism was Greek culture and philosophy and religion. So under Alexander the Great, when you look at world history, Alexander conquered the known world, and then they tried under the tutelage of his teachers, philosophers, to spread Hellenism throughout the world. Well, Jesus said to Philadelphia, uh, since you're at such a strategic location where they wanted to spread Greek culture to the world, why don't you use the open door to spread the gospel to the world? Amen? And so that's exactly, I think, this second part. But you would expect to say because you have good power, you have a lot of people, but he says you have little power, which uh, the Greek word here is mikros for little. And uh, I think when you read on this, you'll see scholars say that it probably means that they were a little church. Sometimes we think that only big churches can make a difference in a city. How many people did Jesus change the world with? Twelve. Twelve people. You add in Matthias, if you believe Matthias is the 12th, or the Apostle Paul, if you believe Paul is the 12th. They did lose Judas, but with 12 men, or if you want to say 13, they changed the world. Peter opened the door to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles in concert with, of course, the other um, apostles. What have you done lately? You tried using your keys? You told anybody lately, hey, hey, I got, a, I got a key that's pretty cool here. It's not, you know, sometimes they give people a key to the city when you're a big shot somewhere. You get the key to the city. I don't know what that really means because I'm sure it's not a key that opens every door. But I think that means if you go to a restaurant, you eat for free, or you want to go see this or do this. But you have the key to the kingdom, folks. You know the one who is the way. And so the open door, I think, also means... Um, that we're ambassadors for Christ. Jesus said, don't be afraid, little micros flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sometimes we think we're so small. Sometimes we say things like this, what can I do? What can I accomplish? I'm just one person. Ever said this before? I'm the only Christian in my family. I'm the only Christian in this company. What can I do? Well, if you sit there long enough and say that, my answer will be nothing. Nothing. If you're going to sit there and cry about it, nothing. But you with God happens to be a majority. Do you believe that? You know, we have, we have prophets in the Bible who said, There's everybody, everybody's gone, there's nobody left, I'm the only one, just kill me now. <laughs> right? And God would say, no, you're not. I have plenty of people who haven't bowed their knee to Baal yet. This church said, Lord, no matter what happens, no matter what comes against us, no matter what we get locked out of, we are going to stand. And you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. End of verse 8. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. There's, there's Philadelphia. You want to know what faithfulness is? Faithfulness is keeping God's word and not denying his name, which pretty much goes hand in hand. You know where most Christian fail, Christians fail? Knowing the word of God and doing it. I'm going to say that one more time. Do you know where most Christians fail? Knowing the word of God and doing it. It's not that complicated, you guys. It's just knowing God's word, which I think so many of you are growing very rapidly in knowledge of God's word. But then the second part of that's probably harder. 
Because head knowledge is one thing. Execution is quite another. I wrote that book. Um, many of you have read it. It's uh, Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God. And that's one of the things I tried to say in there is, is, you know, we can have all kinds of head knowledge, but unless we put on the armor of God, you know, sometimes you say the armor of God and people roll their eyes. I know, I know. I learned those pieces in Sunday school. Yeah, I know, but you got three darts sticking out of the front of you right now, so I'm not sure <laughs> how you've been putting those on. You may be hanging your hat on them, but it's about, it's about it. Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death, John 8, 51. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, John 14, 23. Jesus said in John 14, 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. In John 15, uh, 20, he said, they will also per persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Look, everything comes down to this. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me master and then have no intention of obeying me? Sometimes I wonder why people walk into Christian churches every Sunday if their intention is to leave and go sin. Now, Christians are people who sin. We all would admit that. Hopefully we're sinning less, but there's no sinless Christian. But when Christians sin, they feel conviction, and then they want to repent and get right. Amen? But some people sit in churches week after week, and when they leave, they know they're going back to their sin, and they have no intention of changing. And sometimes it just makes me wonder. Now look, I'll say this, and I want to be careful behind this hunk of wood that I'm honest with you. I had a long stretch like that. First four years of my Christian life. I was trying. I think there was a part of me that wanted to do the right thing, but I was losing the battle. And I know it can be a battle. But look, Jesus, he says, look, I want your obedience. Behold, look at verse 9. I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, we saw them mentioned earlier in Revelation 2, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Can you imagine being in a city like this where there's a huge uh, Jewish presence, perhaps a huge synagogue, and you're, you're, you're spoken of with derision in the city. They, they're like, you're, that's a joke. Jesus isn't the Messiah. God doesn't love those people. Gentiles were made to fuel the fires of hell. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to show them one day. I'm going to show them that I have loved you. And the Jews are going to come, and I'm, I'm not speaking of all Jewish people. I'm speaking of those who were uh, opposing the church and you know, uh, trying to inflict harm on the early church. This is a promise. Write this down. In Isaiah 60, verse four, 14, it says, The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing down to you. But get this. This is some grim irony. The promise, originally in Isaiah 60, verse 14, was written to the Jewish people, saying that Gentiles from all over the world would come down and bow before them. And it flips around in Revelation with some grim irony, where now it says that the Jewish people who are persecuting the church will bow down before the Gentiles and realize that Christ love, loves us or loves them too. So that's kind of how this works. 
The church is the object of Christ's love. You are loved by God. Do you know that? God loves you. Sometimes it's a little hard to conceive. We ask why. <laughs> what did he see in me? Well, he, whatever he saw in you, he made a decision to love you. And right now he loves you and he will love you to the end. He will love his bride all the way into the heavenly kingdom. Amen. He will not stop loving you. He will never stop loving you. He will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. That's why marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, or the gospel is a picture of what marriage should be. And so this is the love that God has for us. The church had all kinds of enemies, but one day they will all see the love that God has for his people. Look at verse 10. This is a bit of a controversial verse, but um, before I move to verse 10, just, just underline, know that I have loved you. Some of you need to underline that right there. Know that I have loved you. I will continue to love you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. The word for perseverance is hupomone. It's a combination of Greek words, which means to, it speaks of cheerful endurance. It speaks of remaining under. Uh, you're under pressure, but you stay true. That's the idea here. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. The word for testing is parasmas. It's the word often translated either temptation or testing, depending on the context. It means a putting to the proof that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, Revelation 3.10 is, there's a couple of camps on this. One camp, and this would be those who fall in the pre-tribulational rapture camp, say this is a promise to the church that they will be kept from the hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world, and therefore the church will be raptured before there's any kind of tribulation. But remember, I've tried to make the case for you, and I want to be as gracious as I can be, knowing that there's some different views with some good people on both sides of this argument, that there is a difference between the day of the Lord, which is God's judgment, and tribulation, which is trouble, persecution, and testing. The day of the Lord, the judgment of Almighty God, will not be a time of testing. Do you know why? Because when God's judgment falls, it's going to be judgment on an unbelieving world. And the day of the Lord will not be light. All kinds of scriptures I could tell you, but it won't be light. It will be darkness and gloom. It won't be a day to celebrate. It will be a day where it's going to be radical, cataclysmic judgment. The day of the Lord is not a test. It's just simply judgment. So Revelation 3.10 says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, in what sense, and this is what everybody wants to know, in what sense will we be kept from the hour of testing? <clears throat> well, let me just um, give you a few facts on this, and I'll share some of this with you, and I'll let you come to your own conclusion. Uh, one writer says, It's impossible to rightly conclude that to be kept from the hour of temptation or testing is to be raptured before the day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord commences. The thrust of the verse is against this interpretation. It is precisely because the church was faithful to Christ, 
in time of trial that he in turn will be faithful to them in the time of their great trial. So it's not guaranteeing, just to put it in simple terms, it's not guaranteeing an out-of-here situation. It's not saying uh, you're not going to have any problems because you've been faithful to me. You've been faithful to me through the problems. If you interviewed people in the Middle East right now who are in underground churches or in China or other places, they would say if, if uh, tribulation is in the future, uh, uh, can we talk a little bit more about that? Because we are, we're in tribulation now. So here's where I get fearful. And I'm not saying that all people in this camp uh, hold this view. But sometimes it's, it's painted in this way. We're going to be spared from all the trouble that's coming upon the world because we'll be out of here and we're going to be raptured. And so we're, we're going to be spared all of that. Folks, the church... I'm sure you've noticed, but I'll just remind you, has rarely been spared tribulation or persecution. It's happening today. In the last hundred years, two brothers did some research, and it was done a little while ago, but they wrote a book, and they said, in the last hundred years, there's been more persecution of the Christian church than for the 1900 years prior to that, back to the time of Christ. In other words, in the last century of our world, there's been more persecution against the church than from ancient times when we read about persecution and we think, well, it was a lot worse then. Because the Christian church has been targeted for extermination in some places. You know, some of you heard about the tragedies in Sudan. Uh, A lot of you are hearing about the tragedies in the Middle East where churches are being destroyed. They're throwing crosses off the top of churches. People are being exiled out of their country. It's, It's quite frightening for a lot of people. So um, here's another writer. He says, The day of the Lord has no temptation or testing associated with it. When all the day of the Lord texts are scrutinized, they indicate nothing whatever of testing. The day of the Lord is a time of divine judgment, of absolute awesome wrath on a godless and unrepentant world. The great tribulation, by contrast, is a time of testing, uh, for example, Genesis 22.1 says God tested Abraham. Look at uh, Revelation 2.10. This is the other church that doesn't get any kind of rebuke or call for repentance. Revelation 2.10. Take a peek. says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be what? That you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So again, this idea of tribulation and testing seems to fit better with a time of pressure for the church. Think of it this way. As the book of Revelation unfolds, what do we have? We have an Antichrist that rises, and he starts to demand upon the world that you must take his mark to be able to what? Buy or sell. And if you don't have that mark, you will not be able to buy or sell. Now, who would be the ones that would refuse to take that mark? Some people would argue it's going to be tribulation saints. But others would argue, no, the, the very people that are there, by virtue of them resisting the, the uh, mark of the beast, are going to be believers. And here's my question. This is just something to wrestle with. If you could not follow Christ when things were easy, and you're an unbeliever, do you think that tons of people are going to be converted when it's going to be at the cost of your life? Or not being able to buy groceries for your family? You know, I know we hold out hope that people will convert then, but 
you know, I think those who would be opposing such a thing would be Christians. We're going to have the image of the Antichrist. We're going to have all kinds of things going on at that time. Those who keep the word of his patience are those who under the stress and pressure of the first three and a half years, and quoting another writer of the 70th week, stay steadfast and true in the face of adversity. The hour of temptation is a specifically appointed time which speaks of the great tribulation or great trouble. It's going to be cut short, we will uh, learn later, for the sake of the elect. So in what sense are people kept from the hour of testing? Let me give you a little bit more on this because I think it's important. One, by physical removal, perhaps men of faith will be watchful. They will flee from Jerusalem like we will see later in the book. It could be by divine protection, something like happened at the time of the Passover. The Jewish people, there was a distinction between Egypt and the people of God. The darkness was on Egypt, but not on the people of God. The plagues hit Egypt, but they didn't hit the people of God. Everybody with me? So it could be something like that. That's what some of our post-tribulational friends hold to. Keep, you are from the hour of testing in this context, translates a Greek verb that carries the basic idea of protection while within the sphere of danger. Now there's two possible interpretations of this um, phrase, which is ektereo. So here's, here's the possible interpretations. It means you either are taken out of the sphere of danger or protected within the sphere of danger. And I think Greek scholars would say both are possible. So one view in plain language would mean you're removed from the danger. And I think that would be our pre-tribulational friends that are in that camp. And then there would be others who would say, no, the way that you really would uh, uh, look at this in terms of the language is you are protected within the sphere of danger. Something similar to the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace where uh, the, you know, who we believe is Christ protects them in the midst of danger. Now, the only other place that we have this idea of ektereo is in John 17. It's very important that you see this and then we'll move on. John 17 Here's this same phrase, ektereo, and take a look. John 17, 15, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's going to die the next day on the cross. He's praying to the Father, praying for the world, praying for the disciples, and he says these words. He says, I do not ask, John 17, 15, I do not ask thee, praying to the Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from. See that phrase, keep them from? That's the same language. I don't ask that you take them out, but protect them from who? The evil one, okay? So go, go back to Revelation. I'm going to touch on this because I know a lot of you, you know, you're, we're studying the book of Revelation. What about the rapture? The timing of the rapture. And what do you believe, Pastor Michael? Okay, here we go. There's four major views now of the rapture. One is pre-trib, one is mid-trib, one is pre-wrath, and one is post-trib. Walter Martin, one of my heroes, was post-trib. I don't hold that view. Chuck Smith, another one of my heroes, was pre-trib. I don't hold that view. Uh, a lot of other good scholars are mid-trib. I don't hold that view either. I hold what's called a pre-wrath view. And by the way, I'll just say this for all of you. This is nothing to divide over as a church. It's only going to matter to one generation 
okay, right? Don't you agree, though? I mean, how, there's one generation that's going to be the rapture generation. Everybody else is going to die. Those are the facts. So if we happen to be that generation, and it's pre-trib, and somebody's holding on to your ankle and saying, I was mid, I was post, baby. It'll be all right. I think all true Christians are going to be raptured. The question is, when will the rapture happen? The pre-wrath camp says, the church is not appointed to wrath. No wrath for the church. However, we do not believe that the wrath of the Lord starts until the seventh seal, which I will teach you in Revelation 6, 7, and 8. So our friends on the pre-trib side say, the whole seven years is the day of the Lord, basically. Most, most of them hold this. And so... Everything is the day of the Lord, including tribulation and wrath. It's just, for most of them, I think, it's all kind of within that sphere. Those who are in a different camp, and I'll just say for my position, I hold that the church will go through a portion of Daniel's 70th week, and then before the wrath of God begins, God will remove the church. But I think that's going to be well into this period of time. In other words, I think... A good portion of the early part of the 70th week or the final seven years won't be God's wrath. It will be Satan's wrath or tribulation against God's people. Everybody with me? I will explain more on this. This is not an essential doctrine. We are to give each other charity on this. I have wrestled with this for a long time. I taught the pre-trib view. I hold a pre-wrath view now. But again, I'll just say to you, it's not an essential. Okay. More to come on that. Stay tuned. Same bat time, same bat channel. Oh, we got to hurry now. He says, I am coming quickly, verse 11. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. Now, I'm coming quickly. You could look at Revelation 2, 5, 2, 16, 3, 3. Didn't necessarily seem to be the second coming, but here, boy, it, it sure seems to fit with the second coming. I'm coming quickly. So think about if you were in this situation, let's say that just for the sake of argument, uh, you're a Christian going through a tough time of persecution and tribulation. What, what would you be looking for to hold on a little tighter and longer? The soon coming of Jesus. You'd be saying, Maranatha, come quickly, especially if it's a time of persecution. So he says, I am coming quickly. Hold on. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one takes your crown. Don't give up. In a place where the there was a uh, stadium and there were games keep running keep boxing keep fighting don't give up and finally he who overcomes i will make him a pillar in the temple of my god you may have been shut out of the synagogue but you'll be a pillar in my father's house amen and he will not go out from it anymore nothing's going to take you away from me uh, interestingly enough in philadelphia there was an earthquake in ad 17 and they said after this even after the city was rebuilt there were tremors uh, for a long time, and people didn't want to stay in the city, so they would stay in the outskirts in tents. How many of you remember the Northridge earthquake? My, my boss at the time, his house was, the foundation of his house was messed up, and uh, he was a very great businessman, and he was well-to-do. He had to sleep in his car with his family in the front driveway because they were afraid the aftershocks might cause the house to completely collapse. Well, this is what was happening in Philadelphia. Uncertainty, couldn't go back into your house. Locked out of the synagogue, but Jesus says, no, you're going to be a temple. 
Uh, you're going to be a pillar in the temple of my God. You're, you ain't going anywhere because I have prepared a place for you. You're not going to leave there ever. And I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name, which probably speaks of things that we're going to know about Christ at the second coming when we see him face to face. And finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we are grateful for your word tonight. Thank you for the church of Philadelphia. We think of the city of brotherly love, and there was a brother who loved his brother and uh, named the city for that. It changed names a few times, and maybe that's part of this reference here. But, but in the end, Father, um, thank you that we have brotherly love within the church of God. Thank you that we have your love. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. We love because you first loved us. So let us be people who are known by our love and with your head and heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to come home to him. If you've been a prodigal uh, and you're trying to get back and maybe you're trying to be found more faithful, just open your heart. With your head and heart bowed, something like this. Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I believe you died on that cross for my sins and took my punishment. I believe you rose from the dead. And I'm going to put my trust in you right now. I repent of my sin. I turn to you. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for a new start tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name. Father, for those who are opening their hearts, may you bless them. May you strengthen them. May you shower your grace upon them. Thank you for this sweet and wonderful congregation. As we head into VBS week, may many children make commitments to you. And may you continue to bless your people in Jesus' holy name, I pray. Amen.